What's up, friends? Hey, only in Texas can you have an almost 80-degree day and then snowing on the next day, right? Um, you got crazy weather. Uh, it's also Super Bowl weekend. And hey, here's the deal. As we think about Super Bowl weekend, you're thinking about the Rams and the Bengals and who's going to win. But here's what I think about. I think about um, an opportunity to be a part of our team. And so at the end of the uh, service, man, what a great way for you to consider serving as a part of our body. Uh, there's so many ways that you could bless people around you by using your God-given gifts to love on others. And it could be from first impressions to serving uh, in our student ministry team. I help lead our student ministry team right now, uh, and our team is killing it, but we could use a few more people. And so uh, if you are interested in that, um, since I'm on stage, I get to kind of give a commercial for that. And so if you're like, I don't have anything to do on Wednesday nights, come hang out with us. Bless some students, uh, encourage them. There's a multitude of other areas if you are perplexed and also a little bit uh, scared of teenagers. There's a lot of other places you can serve. We'd love for you to consider now, today, if you got your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Uh, we're continuing our series called Revealing the Righteousness of God. And uh, as you turn there, just want to remind you that we're talking about this whole idea of the flesh versus the spirit. If you were here last week, I gave you 10 things that don't mix. Um, the, the top, probably the top one on the list and, and probably the one y'all were most encouraged by were, were Super Bowls and the Cowboys. Those things don't mix. Matter of fact, I was thinking about this week. Do y'all realize the Super Bowl was hosted in Dallas in 2009 and we almost couldn't even pull it off? You remember that? The snowstorm and all that. So look, they don't mix. But here's the deal. As we continue this topic of things that don't mix, Paul is building a case for things that don't mix and he's talking about the flesh for the spirit. Now, as he talks about that, he, he, he really kind of adds on to this whole idea. And he's talking about that if you do live a life in the Spirit, that you're going to see it. And that you'll see a visible picture of that in people's lives. Now, it reminds me of an old school pastor that had been hired uh, by a church. Um, and it was an old school church. And they were thrilled by their hire. Matter of fact, if you grew up in church, y'all remember committees and churches? Go ahead and raise your hand if you remember committees, okay? Um, now, what a committee would do is oftentimes they would make decisions. And so you would have the personnel committee. You would have the planning committee. You have the building committee. Well, when you were looking for a pastor, you would get a pastor committee together. You'd have a search team. you go out. And one of the things that you were looking for is, can this guy preach? And, and this guy, that this, this church, a uh, little church, small town, uh, they landed a guy that could preach. And they were excited about him. On his very first weekend, he preached the perfect sermon. Now, when I say a perfect sermon, it means it wasn't too long, wasn't too short. It was winsome. It was funny. It was encouraging, but yet also really challenging. And the people were thrilled. They were like, we have landed the guy. They thought, small town, how in the world do we ever get a pastor like this? He's going to leave us for sure pretty quick. But for the moment, they were excited. He was, he was just all that they hoped that he would be, a, that and a bag of chips. And, and here's the deal. They are all high-fiving each other. They encouraged him afterwards. Like, dude, that was the best sermon I've ever heard. He left encouraged. But the next week, he comes back. And he preaches again. And he preaches the same exact sermon that he preached the week before. And at that point, everybody's like, okay, like maybe, maybe he just was, you know, maybe forgot something or whatever. Nobody said anything about it, but they left. They weren't quite as excited as they were the week before. They come back. It's the third Sunday, and he preaches again. And he preaches the same exact sermon, now three weeks in a row. Now, at this point, they're a little bit concerned for their pastor. They think, 
Well, he, he really preached well, but maybe he's just got some mental issues. He's probably forgetting what he's doing. Like he just doesn't realize and he keeps going to the same file drawer and pulling out the same notes, and he probably just doesn't have it all together mentally. So they actually send someone from the committee just to check on, hey, pastor, are you okay? Like, hey, how's your memory? He's like, oh, everything's great. Like, I'm doing awesome. He goes, okay, great. Well, the following week is his fourth Sunday in the pulpit, and he preaches a sermon, and it's the exact same sermon. Now, at this point, they've gone from excited to a little perplexed, now to confused, thinking that he's lost his mind, and now, like, they're starting to get angry. Because they're like, we hired you to preach, and all you're going to do is preach the same sermon. And so the committee actually calls for a meeting. They get the pastor, and that afternoon, after the Sunday sermon, they all want to meet together with the pastor. And so they go, hey, listen, we need to know what the deal is. Like, you preached a killer sermon the first week. The second week, you did the same. Third, fourth, all the same. We're frustrated now. Like, why are you not preaching? And he looked him in the face, and he said, God called me here to pastor this church. And I'm going to preach the same message until I finally see some of y'all start living it out. Oh, that's Paul's point. Now, here's the deal. Romans 8 is a passage that most Christians love. And the reason why is because it's bookended. Romans chapter 8, 1 says, There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which is really encouraging for the Christian's heart. Because no matter what I do, there's no condemnation. Christ died for me. We love that. You get to the end of the chapter, and you also love that there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. And you think about, there's nothing that can separate. But in between the bookends of chapter uh, 8, verse 1, and towards the end of chapter 8, 38, 39, all of those verses, Paul has a message. And the message is, if you were a Christ follower, there's a point where you're not merely a hearer of the word, and you so deceive yourselves, as James said, he goes, you do what it says. And that's Paul's message today. If we were to close it all up right now, the whole point of the message is at some point, a Christian has to look like Christ. That's his message. And so we're going to build on that thought. Picking up in Romans chapter 8, we're going to pick up in verse 12. Now, Paul's going to use the, the words here, so then, um, or he, he could have chosen others, like he could have said, therefore. And what he's saying is as a result of you knowing that life in the flesh and life in the spirit are like oil and water, he says, so then we brothers are debtors. And he says this, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Now, here's what the, the passage is teaching. One, you can imply already that from this passage that, that the life of the Christian is always going to struggle in the flesh. Paul's made that very clear. In Romans 7, he makes it very clear that there are times where the Christian knows what they ought to do and find themselves not doing it, right? Or you, you know what not to do and you find yourself doing it. Paul knows that. He, he realized that the life in the flesh can be a challenge. What he also helps you realize is that now you are no longer in debt to your flesh. Yes, you're in debt, but it's not to your old life. So at a point, you need to realize that because, as Paul wrote to the church of Corinth, you were bought with a price, you're no longer your own, it means that you yourself are not yours anymore. So you're in debt. The question is, what are you debt to? Are you in debt to the old man who you used to be? Paul says no. So what are we in debt to? Well, you would say, well, maybe we're in debt to Christ. Well, if you make the point that you're in debt to Christ, what does that imply? What does that mean? Does that mean that you have to work your way to Christ now? That's not what Paul means. What he's saying is, you are, you are, 
as brothers, debtors, not to the old man, to live according to the flesh. That's why he goes on. He says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. The idea is you are in debt to the Lord because of what he's done, but you're not in debt to to gain something, his approval. You're simply in debt because of what he's done for you because you now have a new life in the Spirit. Now, what he implies here, if you look in verse 13, is that if you have a life in the Spirit, what do you do? You put to death the deeds of the body. The, the point is, is there's a point where you recognize that if Christ died for me, then I can't continue the way I formerly used to live. That's Paul's point. And he says, and if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will indeed live. So you'll be a free man. You'll be a free woman. Why? Because you're now walking in the Spirit. Now the question is, is how do I know if I'm walking in the Spirit? Well, verse 14 says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are now sons of God. So the point is, if you're walking in the Spirit, you'll now know that you are a new child. It means that the the former you has been crucified. It means that you're no longer subjected to doing the foolish things you used to do because now you're a new person. God's established an act of recreation. And though the act of recreation may be slower uh, uh, for others than than some, the reality is, is he has still put in you something new. Now look, if you have a seed, what do you get from that particular seed? Depends on the seed, doesn't it? Have you ever seen um, a seed of corn, a kernel of corn that you put in the ground? Have you ever seen it grow a tomato? Have you ever seen a peach seed ever grow an apple? No, because there's certain things, laws kind of built into nature, that a peach tree is always going to be a peach tree, an apple tree is always going to be an apple tree. Paul's point is this. If you were a Christ follower... You are a son of God, and because you're now a son of God and the Spirit of God lives in you, you will reflect a new nature. See, if you were to take a peach tree and you were to stick it in the ground because you bought it at Walmart and you stuck that thing in the ground, you might ask the question, well, how long before the peach tree is going to grow? I would think, well, you know what? It's going to take a couple of years. First year, you're going to see a little bit of fruit, probably not enough to eat. Year two, you fertilize it, you've watered it. I mean, you're excited about it, but there's no peaches. Year three, you've done the same thing. You've nurtured, you've cared for it. There's no peaches. The question that I would have is this. How long do you go with this particular peach tree that has been marked by Walmart and you have no peaches before you start to question whether or not your peach tree is good? And when you get to year 10 and you've got a tree that's really fruitful, at least in the sense of it's big, Delightful, gives you shade, but is still yet to produce a peach. What's the problem? It's not a peach tree. You might have bought a maple. You might have bought a live oak. You might have bought an elm, but you didn't buy a peach tree. Paul's point here is very, very clear. If you are a Christ follower, the Spirit of God lives in you, you will see the production of Christ in you. Over time, you will bear fruit. Now, you might ask practically, okay, how, or am I sure that I'm going to grow? Like, and if that's the case, is that what I should expect? Have you ever heard of somebody that's gone to church for a long time, or maybe it's even you, you've said this before, it's just, you know, I know that, that Christ died for me, but I'm a sinner, and I will just always be a sinner. 
You ever thought that in your mind? Like, I just, I'm always a sinner. And, and it, that is in some ways true, right? That, that yes, you're a sinner. But the question is, is that an excuse for us? Like, how long do you begin to live with that idea in your mind? I'm a sinner and it's always going to be this way. Well, that doesn't seem to be the idea that's put forth in Scripture. Matter of fact, Paul writes to Titus. And let's look at Titus chapter 2. You're probably not going to have time to turn there, but if you do, hey, you're great. You're, uh, if you're fast enough, hey, get after it. Titus chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 11 through 13. If not, just make you a little note. It'll also be in the Stone Point News tomorrow with all the notes. But look what Paul writes. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Verse 12 is the key training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of uh, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul is simply saying to Titus, he says, look, when God appears and salvation lands on a person's life, he goes, it'll be clear because you are now going to be trained to renounce what? Ungodliness. You're going to leave your former lust and passions behind. And you're going to begin to live self-controlled. You're going to be upright. You're going to live godly lives in the present age. So even though the world around you is full of duplicity, even though the world around you is full of greed and immorality, and you see things that uh, in the world are, are not pleasing to God, it says that you live differently. That's the expectation. Paul makes that very clear. And he says, and hey, we're waiting on the appearing of our Savior. So the idea is this is a progressive act. That's Paul's point. That the, the whole idea of this word sanctification, which literally means maturity, the idea of sanctification is progressive. You're, you have God's seed in you, and over time, you are going to begin to grow. You may start out as a sapling, but at some point, you become an oak of righteousness. Now, if you look up and you would say, I've been a Christian for 30 years, and you are less mature than a Christian of three years, then you have a real growth challenge. And the way that you address it is by going back to the seed in the beginning and asking, God, what has happened? And did you, in fact, produce something new in me? Because Paul says, if that's true, you're going to see a progressive act of growth. You're going to see it through self-control and upright, godly life in the present age. Peter writes it this way. Uh, Peter was one of the disciples. Oftentimes, if you saw, uh, put his foot in his mouth, uh, oftentimes made some foolish decisions. But look, after God began and established the work with him, look what he writes to a group of people that need encouragement in the Lord. He says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability. He goes on, he says, But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. He goes, look, if you want to grow in Christ, he says, look, it's about stability. And he goes, and it is a progressive growth of grace and knowledge in our Lord. But the point is, friends, is that if you are a believer in Christ, he goes, there will be growth. Just as that, that pastor said in the country church. He goes, it doesn't matter if I preach the same message over and over and over again. If we never do what God's word says, he goes, it's pointless. That's Paul's message. He goes, you will see a progressive act of growth in the life of a believer. It may be small steps. 
but it will be steps towards Christ's likeness. Paul doesn't stop there, though. He continues this idea in, in verse um, 14, which he just says, if you put to death in verse 13 the deeds of the body, you will live. That's a fruitful life. Verse 14, and for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, real quickly, when we just think about sons of God, what does that mean? I can't help but think about my own children. And there's an old uh, term that would just mean homo is saw. Homo is saw literally means same stuff as. Jesus was the same stuff as his father. You remember Jesus saying, I and the father are one? What Jesus was simply saying, what you see in me is what you should see in the Father. Now, the reason I say that term in particular is because I shared it with our students this last Wednesday night. Uh, when you see homo is saw, same stuff as, it means that you can't deny the same stuff as. For instance, you could see one of my kids in the lobby and you go, oh, that's one of Brand's kids. You can't deny them. Um, not necessarily always because of the way they look, but oftentimes how they act, right? When, when my kids do something foolish, nobody looks to their mom and goes, oh, same stuff as. They always look to dad and go, same stuff as, right? And that's just true. Now, you can see that in your own family. Like you seem same stuff as. There are many of you that you and your siblings are very similar to one of your parents, or you, you're a grandparent and you see that your grandchildren are very similar to the parents. And the reason why is because same stuff as. You, you can't deny the same stuff as. That's what Paul is saying here in verse 14. All who are led by God's Spirit are sons of God. He gives you, you want to know that there's life in the Spirit? You see Christ in sons. You see Christ in daughters. Now, Paul, obviously being led by the Spirit when he wrote this, he did not say, as much of you that go to church are the sons of God. He didn't say, as much of you that tithe are the sons of God. He didn't say, as much of you are a patriotic Americans are the sons of God. Hey, as many of you as take communion, as many of you have been baptized, you're the sons of God. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, as many of you who are led by God's Spirit are the sons of God. So the key determining factor to knowing that you are indeed in Christ, whether you're a son or a daughter, is that you're led by his spirit. Now, here's a question. If you are like me, you got to ask, well, what things would I see if I'm led by the spirit? Well, let's get real practical. Like, if I'm led by God's spirit, what things should change in me? If there's a progressive act, what does that look like? So let's just be very clear and very specific on a handful of things. I'm going to show you four things and three passages that I think you'll see. John, uh, an apostle of Jesus, one of the 12 disciples, he says this in his uh, letter, 1 John, uh, and you'll see in chapter 3, verse 24, he just says this. Whoever keeps his commandments, meaning Jesus, abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So he says we can know that God abides in us and us in him and that we have his Spirit given us if, look back to the verse part of 24, if we keep his commandments. So he makes it very clear. If you and I keep the commandments of God, he goes that's a reflection that God's Spirit is in us. So it's about keeping his commands. It's really hard to keep God's commands without his help. Y'all know that? We'll come back to that in a second. Um, John, if you flip over a couple of more chapters to 1 John chapter 5, in verse 18, this is what he says. He says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. 
Now, they can look really confusing at the very end because you're like, okay, what does that mean? And he who was born of God protects him and the evil one doesn't touch him. That's not really the focus of the verse, but I'll explain it in a sec. The focus of the verse is that he who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. That's the focus. So the first idea is John says, look, if you're born of God, you keep his commands. The natural progression is that if you keep his commands, you don't keep on sinning, right? So when you keep your parents' commands, you don't continue to have consequences because the reality is your obedience keeps you in right fellowship. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe you're like me as a child, a little bit of hardhead, took you a little while to learn. Maybe you were disobedient. Maybe there's several consequences that you needed to help kind of get you in line. Anybody ever been there? Yes? That's, some, that's how some of us. And so look, here's, there's a couple of ways that you can, I, I can learn. We can learn by clear precepts or we can learn by punishment and pain. You can be an obedient child and, and you can love your family and your dad and you can go, I keep dad's commands because I love him. Or you can learn through a series of hard knocks, your choice. We all learn differently. Now, I would like to say that I was one of those obedient children that I loved mom and dad and I kept their commands. Now, if you look at my brothers, they learned through a lot of hard knocks. At least that's my story and I'll stick to it. John's point is that you don't keep sinning. Like there's a point in which you grow up, you mature, you learn how to walk. You're no longer infants. You're no longer crawling around. You, you begin to move forward. It's a maturation process. Why do we know God's Spirit? I'll come back to this in 1 John 5. It's because he who is born of God, which is Christ, protects him and the evil one does not touch him. So it's Jesus that covers us. And because Jesus covers us, the enemy cannot touch us. Um, the word touch there is the word hopto, uh, spelled H-A-P-T-O, but sounds like hopto, but it literally means that the enemy cannot cling to you. Another great example, if you're a son of God, it means the enemy does not have a foothold in you. Extra fact, take it for what it's worth. I'm not even sure I should share it, but I feel compelled to. You never see demon possession from a believer. You never have that. You, you can't say, I know Christ, and then have demonic attacks. That's not from Christ. Every time that you're sealed and protected in Christ, you walk in fellowship with him, and you are protected. That's what Scripture says. So just don't confuse the two. So that's extra bonus. I don't even know why I said it. But Romans chapter 13 also is a great uh, just picture of this. So right now we see in 1 John, we keep his commands. 1 John 5, we don't keep on sinning. Look what Paul says to the church of Rome Five chapters over. So if you want to get back to Romans chapter 8 and go five chapters over, you can. Uh, this chapter is particularly talking about authority. We'll touch on it um, in what seems like another year from now. Um, but here's the deal. We'll get there eventually. It's talking about subjecting yourself to authority, which is really difficult for us. But then you get to this, this verse in chapter um, 13, verse 8, and Paul just says, hey, and you should owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. He goes on in verse 9 for the commandments. He, and he reminds all of his audience about commandments they've already known and heard. He goes, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. Now, there's a series of commandments from, from Exodus chapter 20, which were the Ten Commandments. But Paul just mentions a handful of them, and then look what he says. And he says, 
And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then the key is, verse 10, because love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul's point here, though, is simply this. If you know the Spirit of Christ lives in you, you keep God's commands, you don't keep on sinning, but you also reflect that in the way you love others. Now, real quickly, all of us in this room have a capacity to love in our old nature. Just in our flesh, we have a capacity to love. But it's like a 16-ounce cup. You and I have the ability to love our own children because they're the same stuff as us. We have the ability to love our family because, you know, obviously blood is thicker than water. But we struggle to love our neighbor. Hey, we struggle to love anybody else. But that's not what Christ says. Christ actually takes this whole idea of love in a cup, and when he abides in you, he makes it like the love of an ocean which means that you have now the ability to love others, others that aren't like you. I mean, you remember Jesus said, hey, you, you love and pray for those who curse you, who persecute you. The idea is this, is that Paul is saying, look, one of the abilities to see that God lives in you is that you have the ability to love even the most difficult people, people who spit in your face, people who run you down to others. You have the ability to look past that because you reflect the love of God. That's a picture that he has. He doesn't stop there, though. He continues this thought in verse 11. He says, Besides this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than we first believed. Paul's point is, the closer, the older you get, the closer to heaven you get if you're a believer in Christ. But look what he says. He says, The night is far gone and the day is at hand. So then... Let us cast off works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. And then he lists some things that happen at night. Not in orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and uh, jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul makes it clear. He goes, look, it's not just about loving others. He goes, but also it's about loving others. Christ and leaving the deeds of darkness. Now think about this. When do most things happen that are poor decisions? It's, I mean, don't be wrong. There's a handful of us in here. We made a lot of poor decisions in the daytime. But historically, when the sun goes down, the party starts. Historically, when the lights are out, the action is moving. And the point of Paul is just saying this, look, it is in darkness that oftentimes we will not make wise decisions. Isn't it interesting that John the Apostle in 1 John encourages the believer to live in the light as Christ is in the light? The point that Paul is saying is is when Christ lives in you, when his spirit indwells you, it's not just, hey, I love God and I continue to do whatever I want. The progressive act of a believer is, I love God, my heart is positioned towards him, and I want to leave darkness, and I want to live in light. And when I live in light, I confess sin that's in the dark so that I'm known, and that I'm, I'm, I'm here and I'm vulnerable, and that there are other people who can help me walk to be more like Christ. Friends, 
I'll tell you real quick. I'm just going to share one quick thing. The only reason that I would desire for you to live in community in a journey group is so that one, you could be known and that you could walk in fellowship and in light. And the second is, is so that, that you could give an account for someone else that they too are walking and living in the light. The only reason that I would desire that for every single person in here is as, as an elder, as a leader of our church, is so I would know that every single person that I know that calls themselves a member of this church would simply be living in the light. That's it. That you could give an account for your neighbor. That you could say, I know him and I know he's walking with the Lord right now. He is in God's word. He's fellowshipping. He's bearing fruit. And I can give an account for said person. I can't give an account for you if you're not in my group. But somebody's got to be able to give an account for you. And you've got to be able to give an account for somebody. Because that's what believers do. They live in the light. Makes sense? And Paul just says that's the natural progression of believers. He continues this thought in verse 14. He says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, which we've read. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. What he's saying is, he goes, look, God is not trying to pigeonhole you. He actually is not trying to enslave you. He is trying to set you free. He's not trying to give you a spirit of slavery to cause you to fall back into fear. He goes, he's trying to give you a spirit of adoption. Now, when you think about a spirit of adoption, what God wants to do is bestow on us the same rights as his son, Jesus. So the reason that we follow Christ and become heirs of his family is because Christ becomes our brother. And because Christ is our brother and he stood in the gap, he covered us, we now have fellowship with God. We draw near to him, as Hebrews says, with confidence to the throne of grace. And even more over than that, we also have all the rights and the privileges that God desires us to have because we are now sons and daughters. And because we're sons and daughters, you not only see that we become the same stuff as him, we reflect him in light, we leave deeds of the darkness but you also begin to see that we, we have greater intimacy with God. And the greater intimacy we, we have with God, the more that we can come to him and say, Abba, Father, which literally means Father, my Father. It's only mentioned three times in the scriptures. You see it here, you see it in Galatians 4, and you see it one time in Mark chapter 14 when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, Abba, Father, may all these things that are possible for, he goes, Abba, Father, all these things are possible for you. And then he pleads, he says, Lord, if there be any way that you could remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but thou will be done. But right there, Jesus just, it, with intimacy, says, Father, my Father. Now think about that. Can you enter into the presence of God and say, Father, my Father, with confidence because his spirit lives in you? You should. And that's an incredible benefit that we have. But oftentimes the question is, what keeps me from that? What, what keeps me from walking in fellowship with God? What, what keeps me from having a proper view of him? And I would say it simply is sometimes we have a mixed or a wrong view. Now look, I think there's four popular beliefs in this room. I don't think this is an exhaustive list. I'm sure we could come up with more. But here's just four ways that probably we see God in this room. I would say 
probably one of the, the first ways that we see God, if you're not careful, is you see him as cosmic killjoy. You see God as a guy up above. You call him the man upstairs, although he's not a man, he's God. And you think, he's got a list of rules, and he intends me to keep all these. And if, he, if I don't keep all these rules, he's going to smite me. And he has, he has the ability to keep a man down. As a matter of fact, we look at the Ten Commandments and we go, I can't believe I have to keep these commandments. This seems ridiculous. And we look at God as a cosmic killjoy, trying to keep man from exploring and having fun. Matter of fact, I think it's a convenient re- reason for us to say, you know, God doesn't exist. Because if God doesn't exist, then we don't have to be accountable for anything. We can just go have a free-for-all. There's a lot of people who go, I, don't, I think God's a cosmic killjoy. I would say probably the most popular view down here in the South and among most of my friends in this room is if we're not careful, we think of him as a commander. We think about him power, as powerful. He's in charge. We think that he is the one um, who is supreme and he is the one that... Uh, everyone should bow to. We also think, you know what, in order for me to be in good ranks with our commander, then I need to do my part. And you see yourself as someone in the Lord's army. And you think, I need to do more and more because the more I do to please my commander, the more I grow in rank and file. And then you think, well, if I do things that are bad, then I lessen in rank and file. And we see it in some ways as this militaristic idea of God and us and us trying to find approval with our commander. I would say there's others of us that we would say, you know what, I don't know if it's a cosmic killjoy or a commander, but maybe we just see God as concealed. You think God's hiding from me. It's like this big game of hide and seek. I pray he doesn't answer. I pray he doesn't listen. I don't even know if he exists. And so you might even borderline on agnostic because you say, you know, if there is a God in the universe, I'm not sure he cares about me. He's concealed. He doesn't answer my prayers. He's not concerned about me. I'm just a peon in the grand scheme of things. And if there is a God, he is way out there. But I would say all of those views have accurate truths, but they're all wrong. The best way to see God is through the lens of homo isol, the same stuff as him, which is Christ. Why? Because Christ is a reminder that God is powerful and he is supreme. He is indeed the commander of all of the armies. He is righteous and holy and perfect and pure, and his standards are are supreme. They're perfect. He's not a cosmic killjoy because um, even though he has a list of rules, he knows that you and I can't, can't keep the list of rules. It doesn't matter what the rules are. And you might even wonder, well, why in the world did God give the law? Matter of fact, the law kind of seems ridiculous. Ten commands, and they didn't the 613. You know the Jews can't keep them. But why did God do that? Was it because he's a cosmic killjoy? I don't think so. Matter of fact, you think about just some of the civil and ceremonial and even the dietary laws. Let's talk about a dietary law real quick. He goes, I want you guys as Jews to have a long life in the land. Hey, here's one idea. Why don't you wash your hands before you eat? Hey, before you eat out of a bowl, why don't you clean the inside of the cup? Not just the outside, clean the inside. Now, let me ask you a question. You want to have a healthy life in America in the midst of a pandemic? Don't you think it makes two things make sense? One, let's wash our hands. And then let's not use the same cereal bowl that's been sitting in the sink for the last two weeks. Is that a cosmic killjoy? Or is that a wise and loving God who says, hey, here's some things that would benefit you. Which one is it? That's God's desire. The Ten Commandments were set in place so that he would bless people, but he knew that if they didn't use it properly, then it would actually, absolutely condemn them and bring fear to their lives. It would bring slavery. Why? Because they couldn't keep these things. 
He never intended them to be kept by them. You know who he intended to keep the law? His powerful, commanding son, Jesus. The one who didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. How did he fulfill it? He met all the Ten Commands, all the 613. He never thought, did, or said anything that would break God's heart. He was perfect in every way. Why? So that he would cover our sins. That we would look to him high and lifted up on the cross. That we could have eternal life. And he would cover us. Not because we are good, but because he is good for us. And that's the gospel. And he gives us his spirit to enable us to do what's right. Because here's the reality is Christ, he limited himself even to humanity, meaning he couldn't be all things to all people, all places at all time. So he sent his spirit who can. And we're so thankful that Christ was obedient to his father in that way. But as he gives us the spirit, guess what? We now have a spirit, verse 16, that bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Amen and amen. Praise God. Because Christ, who was once concealed, Paul says, was a mystery, made himself known. And as he made himself known to us, we now can become his children. And as we become his children, we begin to show evidence that we are his. And as we show evidence to his, it bears witness even in our own spirit. Now, what's interesting is in Deuteronomy chapter 17, anytime that you had a charge against a neighbor, you had to have two to three witnesses. Like if you were going to go to court, it couldn't just be this anonymous letter written in the mail. Like you had to have two or three witnesses to corroborate a story. Like you had to have that. Listen, can I just tell you that the same bears true. Paul says the same bears true to your own salvation. You have two or three witnesses. And you go, well, does that mean there were a lot of people there when I got saved? No, not necessarily. Does that mean that there were a lot of people at my baptism? That's why I should get baptized. No, not necessarily. Who identified with you in salvation? How, who is it that that says that you're a child of God. Well, here's the deal. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, there's three. And your own inner being, your soul, there's four. I can see four witnesses that would say that God's Spirit lives in me. Which means you don't have to fall back into fear, slavery. You don't have to go, am I a son of God? How do I know I'm a son of God? I obey His commands. I don't keep on sinning. I love others. I leave deeds of the darkness. His spirit bears witness with my spirit. You see that? That's Paul's point. At some point, we begin to see that. Verse 17, Paul goes, and if you are children, hey, then you're heirs. Praise God, because I have the same benefits of my heavenly Father. And as heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What is Paul's point? Paul's point is, is that in in Roman citizenship times, if you were adopted, it means that you left all of the things that your former family behind and you took on a new identity. And you had the same identity and you had the same privileges and the most secure possessions of even that of your brother, even though you were adopted. The point is, is that you are secure and you are a part of a new family, a new identity, a new name, and there is nothing that can be taken from you because you had that under not only Roman and Grecian privilege, but really that's what God's character shows. But the point is, Paul says, if you are heirs of God, there is one more factor that you will see, and that is that you're willing to suffer with him in order that you would be glorified with him. And the idea of suffering is is just this idea that Paul even writes to the church of Philippi. Now, if you're reading along with us and you've been in Philippians, the very end of Philippians chapter one, you see a very good picture here where Paul says in verse 29 and 30, he says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. What is Paul's conflict? Paul's conflict was in verse 23. He says, it's better for me 
to depart from the body and be with the Lord. But it's better for you that I stay. Paul's conflict was, do I stay here in the flesh and continue to have to wrestle and wage war every day, or do I go and be with the Lord? Because that's my conflict. Like, I can stay here and still have to wrestle every day and depend on the Spirit, or I can go there and be glorified and be done. That'd be nice. Because you know when you're glorified and you're at home with the Lord, you no longer wrestle with the old man. But until then, you wrestle with the old man. Paul says, there's my dilemma. Now, what he says is, but I still suffer for the sake of Christ. Now, that's not only Paul's language, but do you know that Jesus, his language was not ambiguous? Jesus is very clear about what he would call a believer. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus tells his disciples, he just simply says, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In Matthew chapter 10, uh, Jesus says it this way in verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses life for my sake will find it. Jesus was very clear that in order for you to identify with Christ, it means that you're willing to lay your life down at some point. Now, it not necessarily mean physically. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to bear your own cross in that sense, but it does mean that you're willing to suffer and even be despised and rejected at some point for the cause of Christ so if it came. Now, here's the question. What does that mean? Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it this way, and I think it's fantastic. He just says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. You remember what Paul says? I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. What does that mean? It means at some point, you're willing to put your own agenda aside for the sake of God's agenda. At some point, you just go, Lord, I don't know what you desire of me, but I'm willing to step out of the way so that you do your work in me. There was a song in the late 90s, and it just simply said this, Lord, ruin my life for the sake of your gain. Now, you're singing that song, and there's people who got their hands up, and they're saying, like, ruin my life. And I'm like, you don't even know what we're singing. But that's what Paul's saying. Lord, ruin it. God, if, if you got to make less of me for more of you, then so be it. God, if you got to put me to the test, so that my character shows a gospel witness and put me to the test. I know a couple of people in this room that their character has been put to the test. People said harsh things about them. They've had hard times. I could look at them right now in the eyes. I could encourage them right now, and I pray that I do. Their witness, their testimony, the way they live in a community that continually kicks people is the gospel witness. It's suffering for the sake of his name. It's how you respond to attacks. It's how you respond to unlovable people. It's how do you respond to whispers throughout. It's about people not just going to church, but being the church. It's about people not being just about our own time and energy and rights and our own position and reputation, but it's saying, Lord, I'll give up my, my time. I'll give up my energy. I'll give up my rights. I'll give up my reputation. Lord, I'll give up my privileges and my comforts. Lord, you do what you want to do in me so that you are glorified among a county that needs Jesus. That's the key. Clear enough? That's the people I want to pastor. Hebrews 13 just talks about consider it a joy. Make it a joy for your leaders. Those type of people are a joy. Because even things are hard. 
And even though life's difficult, it's like, hey, run my life, Lord, for the sake of your gain. Oh, man, what a hard prayer. But Lord, here I am. Send me. That's what the church is about. Now, look, I'll just tell you, that doesn't sound like most of our churches right now. I'll be honest. A little scary, a little fearful, but then we're reminded that God doesn't give us a spirit of fear. We're not falling back into slavery and fear. Why? Because we're set free in Christ. So all we do is run towards him. Stop crawling and walk. Upright, worthy lives for Jesus Christ. You're like, I don't know where to start. Hey, let us know. We would love to help you. But the key is, let's be the light in a world of darkness. Amen, amen, amen. As you watch the Super Bowl tonight, hey, don't look at a game. Look at a city. A city in the world right now who desperately needs Jesus. L.A. Leading the world in many ways. Pray for them. Sex trafficking happening this week. Pray right now that people are set free. Enjoy a game. God gave us a game. But like, hey, listen, don't make that your focus. Don't watch the halftime show because it won't honor the Lord. Ladies, it'll lead your husband astray. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm giving you the heads up now. Walk as children of light. Walk as children of light. And it's in simple things even like that that you do it. Faithfulness is not found because we sit in a chair on Sunday. Faithfulness is found because you make wise and prudent decisions, self-controlled, upright, even among the pagans. And you're like, well, I'm a pagan. Grow towards Christ. Okay, I think that's it. Time's, time's already done. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, God, would you comfort and would remind us of your love for us, Lord, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's nothing that separates us from the love of God. But Lord, may that not be an excuse for us to continue to live a faithful life for you. Lord, help us. We need your help. God, the only way I do anything that's right is because your spirit lives in me. Lord, the only reason that I can live a self-controlled life in the midst of anger is because your spirit controls me. And Lord, even at times, I still miss it. And so, Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for your kindness. And I pray, Lord, you would extend that to all of us, even as we leave this place. God, I pray that there's no one that leaves here and they feel condemned or beat down, but I do pray we feel convicted and spurred on towards loving good deeds. Lord, would you encourage our hearts? But Lord, also remind us that faithfulness means for us to walk in you. And I pray you would help us to do that. We thank you. We love you and we praise you. That it's not about us, but it's about your son, Jesus, who covers us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.